So with that, I give you cricket. My name's Cricket, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. We do it a little bit different than y'all. We don't do the grace of God and all that, although all that's true. But my sobriety date is October the 19th of 1969, and I'm extremely grateful. (laughs) And what y'all say is true. It is the grace of God. It is the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is a program of recovery, and it is wonderful, marvelous sponsorship. I'm real grateful to be here, and I'm kind of like Scott was saying last night. I don't know why you all pick the speakers you pick, you know. People say, how do you get to do that? Well, you answer your phone. (laughs) That's the first step. I don't know how the selections are made, and it's really no different being here except for your weather conditions. (laughs) They're a little strange for Fort Worth, Texas, but other than that, it's no different than being at any other AA group anywhere else. It's um, unbelievable to me to be able to go anywhere and look out over a room full of people, AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen, and realize that this is a picture that God painted. It doesn't matter who's behind this podium. Some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are older, some of us are younger. Some of us are male and some of us are female. We come in different colors, different sizes, and we all suffer from a disease called alcoholism. And the Al-Anons suffer from our disease. And the Alateens suffer from our disease. And I don't know what makes us one. I don't know if we inherit it. I don't really care. I I know that I can't drink alcohol. I break out. I'm allergic to it. I break out in insanity every time. You know, big old highs of insanity all over the place. And I do crazy things. And uh, I do things I'm ashamed of. And I wreak havoc and destruction wherever I go. The minute I take a drink of alcohol, I'm one of those people, thank God, my sponsor was a hard nose. She said, you cannot drink anything containing alcohol, which eliminates old tools, old duels, candy-ass beer, near beer, all of that stuff. She doesn't care. She didn't care if it contained .0005 if it had alcohol in it. I didn't drink it. And so I'm real grateful because I have seen some things that that has led to for some people in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're supposed to tell in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. In a general way, it was living, breathing hell. (laughs) What happened is I found y'all, and it's absolutely marvelous and wonderful and clean today. That's in a general way. Being a little more specific than that, I will tell you that I had a father where a lot of children like to brag about their daddies and tell you that they were very important men. I can tell you that my father was a very potent man. He sired 17 children. (laughs) None of us knew him, so the man left all the time, and that was okay. My mother's full-blooded black Irish and extremely superstitious. She believes that one child in every family is born evil, one child's born possessed. And you determine that by their weight at birth. I weighed two and a half pounds. <laughs> so I was born evil. I was born possessed. And I became that. I really did. 
Alcohol became my favorite relative. It became my backbone. It became my thinking ability. And alcohol was probably a better thief than I was because it stole anything that I ever had to live for, anything I ever had to give, anything that I could possibly ever receive. It was the greatest thief that I've ever met. It stripped me buck naked. And I'd like for people, please, to remember, when speakers get up here, we don't get paid for it. You pay our traveling expenses, and I'm real grateful because I'm one of those who couldn't come if you didn't. But what we're truly doing is before you, we stand buck naked spiritually. We're opening up our hearts. We're opening up our past. We're opening up our present. And we're opening up our future. That's what we're truly doing to you and for ourselves and hopefully for somebody in the room. Please don't stay in the what it used to be like. Listen also to what happened and what it's like today. There were 17 children. My mother didn't get along real well with men. <laughs> I wound up making a living off of doing what she hated to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I tried Scott's quarter trick last night. I'm not a model, y'all. <laughs> we followed crops all over the United States. That's how we made our living back in the early 40s. I know what society says about crop followers. I know that they've formed unions nowadays for crop followers. And there, once again, in my opinion, they've stolen something. Following crops was probably one of the most honorable professions in the world, one of the very most rewarding and one of the most satisfying to me. I liked following crops. I liked picking fruits and vegetables. I liked dirt. I like dirt. I like the feel of dirt. I like the cleanliness of dirt. I like the warmth of it. I like the coolness of it. I just like that way of life. The only thing I did not like about following crops was that every time the picking season changed, we had to change locations. And it seemed as if every time we changed locations and started a new school, that there was something about the outside of cricket that did not allow me to fit in. I did not understand back then that you were afraid of crop followers. So you did not allow your children to associate with us. You thought we were going to take them. We didn't want them. <laughs> they were not near as cute to us as they were to you. We had plenty. We didn't have indoor, electricity, indoor plumbing or electricity. We heated our house with a wood stove in the kitchen. We bathed once a week on a regular basis, and we put a galvanized tub in the middle of the kitchen floor, and we heated water on the wood stove, and we dumped water in the galvanized tub, and all the children would take a bath. Now, being the runt of the litter, I was the last one in the tub. Those tubs do not have plugs where you drain the water in between children. You just add another bucket of hot water. So I was probably dirtier coming out than I was going in. But I liked it. I was raised in a family that really wasn't safe. I was raised in a family that when the sun went down, all of the children went outside. 
We weren't afraid of what was outside. We knew what was inside. And in that family, we went to church. We went to church at Thanksgiving time, and we went to church at Christmas on a real regular basis. (laughs) We went for maybe the wrong reasons. We went because ministers would stand behind pulpits and they would tell their congregations to feed the hungry people and to do for those less fortunate. And what they would do, those two times of year, they would give a big wicker basket of food to the poor people. And we'd sit on the back row and we'd listen to these ministers in exchange for that basket of food. And it'd have candies in it, the old Christmas ribbon candy. There might be jackets for us kids and there might be coloring books. And that was a neat exchange. My first experience with God was an exchange for a basket of food. And I never will forget what I heard the minister say because I believed him. I absolutely 100% believed the gentleman. He said that anything I'd pray for in the name of Jesus I'd receive. There was no question mark. It was a stated, stated fact. Anything I prayed for in the name of Jesus I'd receive. What I wanted more than anything in the whole wide world was skin that was not repulsive. Because we didn't have the proper things to keep our bodies clean, I had horrible, horrible skin. And I went home, and as a little girl, I ran to a mirror. And I looked in there, and I found a place on my face that didn't have a zit. And I put my finger on it, because I didn't want Jesus to get confused. So I said, in the name of Jesus, when I waken in the morning, make the rest of my face as clear as this spot is right here. And I really went to bed believing that when I woke, there would be no zits. That way I wouldn't have to sit with my hands over my cheeks. That way when you looked at me, you wouldn't look away. That way maybe I wouldn't have to be so different. But when I woke in the morning and went to the mirror, there was a zit right where I prayed. So I knew Jesus didn't like me. Now, I'm not telling you that what that minister said was not the truth. I don't think he heard, knew what the little girl heard. I don't think he knew how his message was taken. And I think we have a grave responsibility in Alcoholics Anonymous that when we tell the message, we try to be sure that you understand what the message really is. And we can almost guarantee what the message of recovery is all about. That gentleman could have probably almost guaranteed what his message was all about if he knew what I heard, but he did not. God and I had a fallen out, and I went behind my wood stove. My wood stove became my safe place. I fit just right, and it was warm enough behind that wood stove. Nobody else could come back there with me. That was the safest place I've ever been in in my entire life was that little corner of the world that belonged to Cricket. And I'd stay behind that wood stove and I'd make believe. And I'd close my eyes and I'd pretend that my hair was a different color. I'd pretend that my eyes were a different color and my skin was clear and my teeth were not rotting out. That was before I took my first drink of alcohol. At the age of 12, two of my older brothers had become armed robbers. They violated the area behind my wood stove. We had solid walls in our house. If you tapped on them, it made a hole. 
And they tapped on the wall and they made a hole and that's where they hid their guns and the money. And in exchange for me not telling on them, they brought me a present. Now my family doesn't give gifts, but they brought me a present. They brought it to me in a brown paper sack and they introduced me to Jim Beam. Being a young girl without any problems, I sat there behind that stove. I opened up that bottle of whiskey and I drank it. I mean, I drank it better than I do water. And I never will forget how that whiskey burned me. It burned my throat, it burned my chest, it burned all the way down. That whiskey burned all the way back up again. And that bit whiskey burned all the way back down again and I kept drinking. I kept drinking. I don't know that I was able to feel and that was probably the best blessing that that whiskey gave to me, the fact that I was not able to feel. And I continued hiding behind that stove and I continued drinking and I made a deal with that God that I'd heard about and I said a prayer and it went something to the effect of, Dear God, sir, my name's Cricket. I don't believe in you. I don't believe in family. I don't believe in cleanliness and I don't believe in goodness. But just in case you are, I have one last prayer for you, sir. Help me to never feel again. And I don't want any special favors. I don't even want to feel good. I left home and went to the streets of Denver, Colorado. We had settled in Colorado at that time. And I lived on the streets of Denver doing what every young alcoholic that lives on the streets had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. I stayed on the streets of Denver for several months. The state of Colorado interfered. They did not intervene. They interfered. <laughs> they sent me to the state reform school in Morrison, Colorado to punish me for being incorrigible. I didn't know what that meant. I'd been called a lot of things, but not incorrigible. In the reform school, there was one person to a bed. That was a new experience. There were two sheets on the bed. That was new experience. There was indoor toilets. There was electricity. There were three meals a day. I liked punish. Punishment and I got along real well. And I stayed there for about a year. I learned a whole lot of things in that reform school that's not on their curriculum. Um, you're there because you're bad. <laughs> and you leave badder than when you went in. <laughs> I left the reform school when I was released and I went immediately back to the streets of Denver doing whatever an alcoholic on the street had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. I stayed on the streets of Denver approximately three more years. The state of Colorado interfered one more time and they picked me up. They decided that they were going to send me to the Colorado State Insane Asylum in Portable, Colorado. It was not a hospital. It was not a treatment center. It was an insane asylum. This is in the middle 50s. To put me in there, they had to have a diagnosis. So they diagnosed me. They did not recognize teenage alcoholism back in the middle 50s. They diagnosed me as schizophrenic with paranoid reaction with psychotic tendencies. I didn't know what they were calling me. I was sober eight, nine years, and my sponsor says, schizophrenic means you're two-faced, and you are. Paranoid means you think people talk behind your back, and they do. And psychotic means you'd rather kill them than yourself, and I would. <laughs> and 
in the Colorado State Hospital, I, I was stayed 18 months from the age of 16 almost to my 18th birthday. They gave me 10 milligrams of Valium four times a day, 25 milligrams of Librium four times a day, and 50 milligrams of Thorazine four times a day. For 18 months, the compulsion to drink was removed. So was the compulsion to go to the bathroom in the right place or breathe in and out. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they administered electric shock treatments. Now, this is back in the middle 50s before they were perfected. If you ever perfect anything as inhumane as shock treatments, and if you hear a little resentment there, there is a little resentment there. This was my first experience with being strapped to a gurney and having someone hold me down from my neck to my feet, waiting in a waiting room for my turn and seeing the patients come out of the treatment room and seeing how they shuffled and how they couldn't talk and how they couldn't walk and how they had messed themselves, knowing that that was going to be me in just a few minutes. And having people lie me on that gurney and hold me down and have a psychiatrist put a row of gauze in my mouth about that wide and sticky stuff here and a little band around here and reach his hand to a lever and then the idiot would ask me a question. The only thing I had control over was my eyelids and he would look down at me and say, are you scared? Now, I was as scared of my last one as I was of my very first one a year and a half later and I'd had a lot of them. When I went before the uh, review board, thank God, God did for me what I could not do for myself. A week prior to my 18th birthday, I was released accidentally. They were going to do a sterilization on me when I turned 18. And I've got a wonderful daughter. And there again, they would have stolen something from me. The thieves would have came in and they would have stolen something from me because I wouldn't trade what I have with that child. And, there were, you know, that's just my personal opinion. I, when I left the Colorado State Insane Asylum, I weighed approximately 300 pounds. I could not get out into the sunshine because of the Thorazine. My teeth had continued rotting out of my head. I love false teeth. I got false teeth, and I love them. They, they fit. I can eat almost anything, and they don't have big, black, gaping holes. And I'm real, real grateful for that. And I don't hurt in my mouth anymore. And I'm grateful for that. When I left there, my teeth were rotting out. I couldn't talk. I mean, I tried to communicate with people. But the only thing that could come out was glutteral, uh, almost like a person who'd had a stroke. I couldn't walk. I shuffled side to side. I couldn't hold my head up. And I'm not talking about hold your head up out of dignity. I'm talking I couldn't hold it up. <laughs> Physically, it just kind of wham to the side. And you know where I went? Back to the streets. A marketable commodity seems to be always a marketable commodity. It doesn't matter what it looks like. There's always somebody with a quarter out there somewhere <coughs> or that will buy you a drink. And every time I was on the streets, I found a way to get that next drink of alcohol. I did whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. As my head got the muscles fixed, kind of, and I could hold it up, as I could talk again, as I could walk again, I started traveling. And I traveled all over the United States on the Greyhound bus. 
and I'd go to new cities. The first thing I looked for in a new city was a beer joint. I'm not a housewife drunk. I'm not a saloon drunk. I'm not a bar drunk. I'm a beer joint woman, you know. And you know what differentiates me between me and the woman who wasn't? We were planted in different gardens. I know some women who hid in their home doing the same things I did on the street for the same reason. You know, they, the difference, they woke up with the same man every day. They did the same things every day for that man so he'd continue to bring that money home so they could continue to drink. I did too. I just, my men were all named John. <laughs> I never had to worry about it either. And I continued to do all of those things. I stayed on the streets of any city, anywhere, USA. I sat on the little plastic bar stools, and I always found one at the very far end that was just right for my rear end. And usually the plastic was cracked, and they had the gray duct tape across it, and I left people alone. With 27 years of sobriety, I will tell you, I do not consciously remember ever starting a fight. <laughs> People always seem to instigate them. And it, looking back, I have to be honest, it didn't take a lot. You know, speak to me, and that was a reason. But use a big word on me, and that was definitely a reason. Call me inebriated? That meant we were going to get after it, because I didn't know what inebriated meant. Drunk? I can handle that. Call me drunk. I identify. No problem. And I did this, and I sat next to men who some of them probably are members of Alcoholics Anonymous now. If not, maybe someday, God willing, they will be. And I'd sit there, and I'd see these men come in after work. God bless you, Alanons. You got, boy, you'd do to ride a river with, I'm telling you. These men sit down, and they do the most marvelous display of hurt I've ever seen. They sigh from all the way down below their belly button. And it comes all the way up. They sit on a bar stool and they go, <sighs> they've got something you want. The ability to buy you that next drink. That's what they've got. And you look at this man and you say, what's the matter? And he says, work all day. Want to go home? Just kick back and relax. But I know when I get there it's going to be Nag, nag, nag. So I just stop off for a couple of beers. And boy, I know I'm going to get it when I get home. Now you've been watching them. They're already on their fifth or sixth. And then you say the magic beer joint woman saying, If I had a man like you. <laughs> and these men inevitably sat taller. They felt more handsome, and they acted more macho, you know. Now, I could have taken any of these men on any day of the week on the streets, physically. I mean, in a knockdown drag out, I always came out with a sandwich, and I'm a dirty fighter. And I, I wouldn't have been afraid of one of them, but boy, they, they sat taller, and they look at you, and they say, Honey, would you like a drink? And you duck your head like a good alcoholic female. We're supposed to. We're women. And you say, if you want to. Oh. <laughs> Suckers each and every one. <laughs> and let me tell you, precious Alan, on something. 
when your husbands came home and said they didn't do anything, they probably didn't. Half the time they were so drunk they couldn't. (laughs) If they told you we weren't worth anything, we didn't mean anything to them, they were telling you the truth. Those men that met women like me in those type of places never took us home. They never made promises. They never really wanted to be with us. They knew what they had. They just didn't know how to go back and keep it until they found recovery. They didn't want me. I didn't want them, I don't think. I don't know. I've had 12 husbands. Two of them were mine. I stayed there, you know, and I kept doing those things. And, and we, had a, we had a rule. The men understood the rules. We understood the rules. And we never had to state them. We never had to state them. I had no desire ever to not drink. I had no desire ever to join the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I wound back up in Denver, Colorado, I was 27 years of age. I weighed 78 pounds. My hair hung to my hips. I wasn't as cute as I thought I was. But I went to a beer joint, and I met a man. And that man had a wife. And he told me that he and his wife were watching me, and they thought I had a problem drinking. And I said, I don't have a problem drinking. He said, we think you do, Cricket. And I said, no, I don't have a problem drinking. He said, tell you what. If you go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with us tomorrow night, and we feel like you don't have a problem, we'll leave you alone. I said, okay, big boy. (laughs) He said, now do me a favor. When you get up in the morning, don't take that first drink. I said, that's no problem. Well, I went home. I woke up in the morning, and I did what I'd done every morning for a long, long time. I sat up in my bed. I reached to the side of my bed for my whiskey. And God doing for cricket what she could not do for herself I could not take that first drink of alcohol that day. That man and his wife called me later in the day and he said, Do you need a ride to the meeting? I said, I don't need anything from you, big boy. I told you I'd be at your meeting. I'll be there. And he said, "Uh, Okay. And I took a taxi cab to my first meeting at 1311 York Street in Denver, Colorado. And I climbed the steps. And I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was abhorred. I mean, people were laughing at things that weren't funny. (laughs) Y'all smelled identical. And it was a clean smell, which was unfamiliar. The women were mostly covered up. And I thought, my God. And there was a red-headed lady. I had two prejudices when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Red-headed women and gay people. Now, just to show you what my God has done for me, I sponsor two beautiful red-haired women today, and I sponsor about eight gay women. And I don't know where that prejudice comes from. Probably what our big book says, Contempt Prior to Investigation, probably covers prejudice more than any other thing I've ever read in my entire life, any kind of prejudice. I walked into that meeting, and this red-headed lady came walking up to me, and she said, Hi, I'm Sharon. Are you an Alki? I knocked her on her rear end. (laughs) She didn't need to speak to me. I hadn't spoke to her. You know, she trespassed the boundary, not me. 
And some of the men came up to her. It was kind of cute because she was on the floor. And they said, have you told Cricket that we care? And she said, not yet. (laughs) I said in the meeting at 1311 York, and I said at the back row, they did not do sponsorship there the way I discovered sponsorship in Texas and the way they do it where Scott's from. I don't know how you all do it here. They didn't do it that way. I sit on the back row. They pass their little brown wicker baskets, and when I was a newcomer, they used to say very graciously, if you've got it, put it in. If you need it, take it out. (laughs) Now, what do you all think I did with their money? (laughs) Exactly what they told me. I took it. When I was a newcomer, they said, take what you can use now, what you can't use now, come back and get it later. So I went into their office, and I took their adding machine, I took their typewriter, I took them to the pawn shop, because that's what I could use right then. I went back later to break into your Coke box. I'm one of those who make you study your traditions. I'm one of those that make your group consciences last two or three hours. I'm that member that everyone says, we got to get rid of her. How? I'm not going to tell her. Are you going to tell her? No, I'm not going to tell her. Who's going to sponsor her? Not me. Keep her away from my husband. Keep her away from my kids. Keep the baskets away from her. <laughs> Who's going to tell her to quit turning the tables over? Who's going to tell her she can't hit people she don't like? Who's going to do that? Not me. Are you? No, not me. I'm one of those. And everyone in your group looks the other way when I walk in the door. You're, you think that if you don't acknowledge me, I'll go away. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. I'm there to stay. And you know why? Because at my first meeting, I also heard that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous as long as I didn't take a drink. This man more or less challenged me to come to AA. If I take a drink, that tells this man I'm weak. If you kick me out, that tells him I have no control. So I waited for you all to kick me out. I did everything I knew how to do to make you kick me out. And you had your little meetings and your little clandestine inventory taking of my activities. (coughs) Probably the only time in my sobriety where someone took my inventory accurately. (laughs) And you sent a bunch of men to talk to me. It was adorable. I mean, I'd had some long-term sobriety by the time they approached me, probably three weeks. And uh, they come up to me as I come in the door, and they said, Cricket, we're not going to put up with your stuff anymore. And you know what? I felt instant relief. I thought, I have waited for this day. I want to get back to my beer joint. I want to sit on my bar stool. I want to drink until I die. I just want a drink. I don't want to bother any of y'all. I don't want any of y'all bothering me. Just let me go back. Let me drink. Let me die. And when you told me that you weren't going to put up with my stuff anymore, when this group of men did, that was my feeling. And I just kind of smiled and said, sort of like, okay. And they said, now we can't kick you out. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, you can. It's okay. And they said, our traditions won't allow us to. And I thought, wow, get rid of them. (laughs) 
why not ignore them in 69? People do in 96, you know, but they wouldn't do it. It sounded like almost like a social disease. See, today, if we're not careful, we can use the traditions to do just the opposite of what they were designed for. Traditions are designed as a tool to help a group or Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. The steps are designed as a tool to help the individual alcoholic. Those people use the traditions as a tool, not the way we can use them today as a weapon. They used them as a tool to help people recover. The tool that they used with those traditions that day was they told me that since they could not kick me out, they would no longer accept my behavior. I would be escorted to the AA meetings by two men every evening. I had to bring back the money I'd panhandled. I had to quit telling men my price list. I could no longer turn over the tables. I had to repay, pay for the repairs to the Coke machine. Now, I stayed sober in Denver, Colorado. I'm one of those blessed people. I have not had a drink of alcohol since the day I walked in the doors because I'm waiting for you to kick me out. You know, you've got to cause me to drink. I'm not going to accept culpability for it. You've got to cause it. And I did that. Stayed sober six months. I was approached by the narcotics division of the Denver Police Force. They told me I had to leave Denver. And I thought, wow, six months and I've done nothing. Why are you doing that? And I said, okay, big boys, where am I going to go? And they said, Cricket, you're moving to Fort Worth, Texas. I said, wait a minute. Drunk, I didn't go to Texas. Sober, you're telling me I have to go to Texas? See, I'm a believer. When people tell me things, I believe them. And I've done that since I was that little girl who heard what that minister said. And what I had heard about Texans, now I don't know how many of y'all have ever had outhouses. They usually do not come with Charmin toilet paper. Magazines and newspapers. But I'd heard that Texans use corn cobs. I believed it. I truly believed it. And I said, okay, big boys, I'll go to Texas on three conditions. I want a case of the softest toilet paper made by mankind. I want a high school diploma. I've got four years of education. I want a high school diploma, and I want a car and a driver's license. They said, you got it. The narcotics division of the Denver Police Force took me, and this lady read me questions for about 30 minutes, and she said, congratulations, you passed your GED. They bought a case of Charmin toilet paper. They bought me a 58 Rambler station wagon. (laughs) Now, they made a mistake on that one. I got in that car. I'd never driven, never, (laughs) at all. But I did get a ticket for driving under the influence, but I got drunk and got in a shopping cart and went down a hill. Created all kinds of havoc. St. Joe, Missouri doesn't like me. They kicked me out. So did Kansas City. St. Joe kicked me out. I don't know how many of y'all have ever been there. They're real proud of their Pony Express statue and Jesse James. I did something to their Pony Express statue that they didn't like. I did a transsexual. Transsexual. I made it what it was when it was, they molded it. And they kicked me out of their city for doing that to their little statue. You're right, Liz does laugh. (laughs) 
I got in that car. It had three pedals. I've got two feet, and I thought, woo, one of us has a problem. And I go down to take a driving test every day for a while. <laughs> About the fifth day I go in, all these cops look at one another. It's kind of like your groups. You get a sick one in there, and everybody says, I'm not sponsoring. You can sponsor, I'm not sponsoring. You get one brave old soul says, I'll try. Well, this man said, boys, I'll go out and get in the car with her. We went out and got in that Rambler station wagon. He said, cricket, crank it up. And I did. And he said, congratulations, you passed your driving test. <laughs> I knew how to use first gear and third gear. And I didn't know how to use any other gears. And so I had to park where I could jump. <laughs> that car made it from Denver, Colorado to Fort Worth, Texas, and it never went anywhere again. Never went anywhere again. And I did what the narcotics division of the Denver Police Force told me to do. I called a group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the man that answered the phone asked if he could do anything for me. And I said, I doubt it, big boy. I just need directions to your group. He said, do you need a ride? I said, I don't need anything from you. I need directions to your group. Can you handle that? Six months sober, I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Fort Worth, Texas, and a red-headed lady came walking up to me. <laughs> Her name was Nadine, and she opened her arms, and she said, Hello, darling. I knocked her on her rear end. <laughs> In Fort Worth, Texas, I started hearing about Al-Anon. Never heard that word. I didn't know what one was, but I kept hearing the AA men talk about them, how they were sicker than we were. Never heard an Al-Anon say that. Never heard an AA woman say that. But I heard a lot of men say how sick their Al-Anons were. I felt a great deal of compassion. And I wanted to protect you men. <laughs> so I went to the hospital. And I asked a gentleman where the intensive care unit was. And he said, lady, it's right behind that sign. And when he left, I stole the intensive care unit sign. And I took it back to my group, and I nailed it on the Al-Anon room door. <laughs> Somebody needed to tell them how sick they were. <laughs> Their husbands weren't going to. Once again, let me tell you what my God has done for me. I sponsor one of the most marvelous Al-Anon women in the world. We go to Al-Anon. We do the Al-Anon steps. We read the Al-Anon literature. Y'all lied to me about them. Y'all lied. That night, however, we had meetings at 8 o'clock only back then. That We didn't have three and four meetings a day. The AAs came in and sat down. The Al-Anons walked through our room to their back room and sat down. And they shut the door at 8 o'clock. And the AAs see this intensive care unit sign. And they all turned around and looked at me. <laughs> I didn't say anything that you could... Verbally, I didn't say anything. I was proficient in sign language. <laughs> the late Al-Anon comes in. Now, I don't know about y'all, but we always have a late Al-Anon and a late alcoholic. The late Al-Anon comes in, and she sees that sign. Al-Anons do not have to slam doors. They're very emphatic when they shut them. <coughs> She went through that door and she emphatically shut that door and about three seconds later 
the Al-Anon came out. The Al-Anon was adorable. These little veins were sticking out. These veins were sticking out. Her shoulders were up. Her nostrils were flared. And she said, who hung that sign? And I said, I did. She said, it's okay. She was scared of me. You know, she was scared of me. And I find that kind of sad today. But that's what I'd given that group. That's what I had given that group. Somebody got a resentment. They torched the group. Not me. I didn't do it. But the group could not be rebuilt. The group had to physically move. When the group moved, I couldn't move with it. Now, I don't know why. Yes, I do. God doing for Cricket what she could not do for herself. There's another group in my hometown of Fort Worth, Texas called The Harbor. And I'd been told from the day I went into Fort Worth that I would never fit in at that group of AA. Because those people are more intelligent. Those women are ladies. Those men have careers. They have more money in that group than any other group, and they would never accept a woman like me. Never. I had no choice. Eight years continuous sobriety, and I walked into my first meeting at Harbor Group in Fort Worth, Texas, and a red-headed lady came walking up to me. <laughs> she was an older lady. I didn't want to hit her. I would have, you know, just a matter of principle, but the want to wasn't quite there. <clears throat> and she said to me, Cricket, I'm real scared of you. And I just kind of looked at her and she said, but I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> Wait a minute, woman. I've got eight years of sobriety. I don't need you. I don't need a sponsor. She said, oh, darling, I know that, and I'm not taking away from your sobriety. So let's make a deal. Let's go back here in this little office. And if I think you understand what the program of recovery is all about, I'll leave you alone. Not the fellowship. Not the patting on the back saying, hi, it's good to see you. Not the coffee table AA. The program of recovery is all about. I'll leave you alone. We went to the office of Harbor. We sat down at the table, well, a desk that they have. Betty G. opened the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she handed across the desk to me, and she said, Cricket, darling, read me the first portion of Chapter 5. And I started reading the first portion of Chapter 5 to Betty. And she reached across that desk, and she took the Big Book of AA out of my hand, and she said, Cricket, darling, you can't read. And I said, wait a minute, woman, wait a minute. I just read you the first portion of Chapter 5. She said, no, I had it open on Chapter 3. And everything inside of me kind of sunk. Because there's a whole lifestyle that you live when you're functionally illiterate. And you can hide it almost as well as you hide alcoholism. In fact, sometimes better because it doesn't smell. You know, and you don't wake up with a hangover from it. And you learn a whole different lifestyle of deceit. And I asked her, I said, woman, what are you going to do with that information? And you know what she did with that information? 
she took me to remedial reading. That group of people that would never accept a woman like me set me in the coffee bar of their club room where the group met and still does meet, and those older men and women taught me how to write, taught me how to spell, taught me how to do basic mathematics. They made me change the way I dressed. My sponsor made me wear things all the way up and all the way down. I, I thought it was a program of attraction, and she said, that's not what it means. I wanted to be a sharing woman. And she said, that's not what it means. And we've got to do the steps before you can even think about those traditions. My sponsor was a judge's daughter. She had a doctor's degree in something. She was a very intelligent lady. She was also a warm, caring woman, a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They started me reading and writing. They started teaching me table manners. The way I grew up, all you ever needed was a spoon, and even that wasn't a hindrance if you didn't happen to have one. They started teaching me table manners. I became pregnant with my first and only child. I was 37 years of age. I went to the hospital to have this little child, and I told my sponsor, I said, you know what? For some reason, they expect me to take that baby home with me. And she said, well, Cricket, that's what mothers do. And so I did that. I called my sponsor in a few days, and I said, Betty G., you need to come and get this baby. And she said, oh, Cricket, why? I said, because I'm going to hurt it. And she said, Cricket, you wouldn't do that. And I said, yeah, Betty G., you need to come and get this baby. Because, see, when I start hurting her, I'm not going to be able to stop me. Within 20 to 30 minutes, there were alcoholic males and females, Al-Anon males and females, and Alateens in my home. When my child would make me, when she'd cry, and those feelings would come over me, you know what they taught me to do? Put her in her crib and me go outside. My child has never lying in the floor and seen a foot coming down to hit her upside the head. I have never called her a dirty name. I've never backhanded her. Never. She doesn't know that kind of experience. Not because I'm a good person, but because I had marvelous teachers. At that point in my life, Betty G. started me on the most incredible journey I've ever been blessed to walk on in my entire life. I had to go buck naked before that God, and I'm talking spiritually buck naked. And I had to admit that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable. And I had to come to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. Me. Sanity was something way out there. Sanity was something for normal people. I could never be restored to sanity. Sanity is a gift, my friends. It's not something you take for granted. It doesn't come by osmosis. Yes, I wanted sanity. You know why? Because I wanted to be able to lie my head on the pillow at night and not hear the storms. I wanted to be able to eat a meal 
and feel full. There was always something inside of me that never filled up. No matter how much I drank, no matter what else I put in my body, how much food I ate, nothing could fill that up. I was always empty, and I never belonged, and I never fit in. These people started teaching me, my sponsor, one day at a time. And she taught me to make a decision to turn my will, not y'all's, my will. And I had one. When God restored me to sanity, he gave me a will, which meant at that point in my life, I could start making decisions. I could start having choices. I'm not a little girl behind a stove. I don't have to hide from anybody anymore. And when he gave me my free will, then I could turn that over to him after step two, an amazing thing happened. I said something to God, you know, big boy, is it too much to ask you to help me get some rest? This is with many years of sobriety. Can you handle that, big boy? Something washed over me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, and it said, be still and know that I am God. Now, that's not a threat. That's not even a compromise. That's a fact. Be still and know that he is God. My sponsor had me do an inventory. I don't think it would surprise you if I tell you that it was rather lengthy. (laughs) And she had me go further in the steps. When we got to step eight, and I had my list, I wasn't worried about step nine. I said, Betty, there are a lot of those amends I'll just have to make a living amends for. You know, because that's what them people down at the group say. She said, wait a minute. What do you mean living amends? <coughs> I said, well, you know, before they started sending Social Security checks, direct deposit, I used to take them out of mailboxes till the government snapped, and then they might make them directly to the senior citizens, thank God, because there's still people like me. And I said, Betty, when I was doing that, I didn't keep track of those people's names and addresses. I never planned on making amends for stealing their checks. And she said, and I said, so I'll have to make living amends. She said, no, 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 no. There's another way you can make amends to senior citizens. I said, how's that? She said, at the club, every Saturday night, our senior citizens like to play bingo. It's a three-hour commitment. They always need someone to call it. So let me see about how much you stole. Seven years I called bingo at Harbor if I was in Fort Worth, Texas on Saturday night. If I stole from any of you senior citizens, please tell me and I'll borrow the money from someone tonight. I don't want to call any more bingo. I don't want to do that deal. I got up to what is fondly called the maintenance part of the program and there was still something missing. I didn't abuse that little girl. I didn't dislike that little girl. But I didn't love that little girl either. And I went back before that God. And I said another prayer. And it went something to the effect, Dear God, sir, my name's Cricket. And you know, sir, I don't drink. I'm trying really, really hard to be a right type of person. But when those people hold my hand, as soon as possible, 
I have to run to the restroom and wash it off. And I've been sober a long time, sir. When they go to hug me, it's all I can do to stand there like a board and let them touch me. Can't stand it, sir. And see, sir, I've got that girl, and I'd like to like her. And I know you're not going to cut me any special favors. If it's at all possible, sir, help me to feel again. And I don't even care if I have to feel bad. A month or so later, my sponsor became very ill. She got arterial sclerosis and she started having strokes. I went by her house every morning and fed her breakfast, every noon and fed her lunch, every evening and fed her supper. I did her laundry. I took her to the doctor. I was allowed to sign on her checking account. I drove her car. I did whatever she wanted me to do. The time to thank my sponsor was then. <coughs> living amends are okay if the person you're trying to make them to is still living. Thanking your sponsor is okay. It's kind of neat if you do it while they're still living. Valentine's, my sponsor called me. This was a few years back, seven or eight, maybe nine years now. And she said, Cricket darling, I want to sleep in a lavender nightgown tonight. I said, okay, Betty G. She says, and I want six live yellow tulips. And I said, okay, Betty G. And she said, Cricket, I'd like sausage and biscuits for supper. I said, okay, Betty G. I went to Kmart. I'm a blue light woman, you know, <laughs> and red. Uh, <laughs> went to Kmart. Y'all laugh, but it's really not funny. I don't do freebies, never have. <laughs> I look at Scott and I'm tempted. <laughs> Just for practice. <laughs> I went to Kmart, probably the first thing in her life my, got, my sponsor ever slept in or wore that was from Kmart. I bought her a lavender nightgown. I found her six live yellow tulips. I went to her house and I fixed her sausage and biscuits. And I cleaned her up. And I put her lavender nightgown on her. And I took this, this woman's long and tall. I took her upstairs and I tucked her in her bed. And I put her live yellow tubes beside her bed. My sponsor looked up at me and she had the crevices that God gives to people as they age. Those lines that you earn. Those lines are so beautiful. Those lines are so beautiful because they each have a story. And there was a tear coming down that line on her cheek and I reached my finger up and I tried to trace that tear I wanted to see where it came from where's that tear coming from I was on my way it was Saturday she knew where I was going harbor to call bingo <laughs> and I got up here and I thought that tear's not coming from there that tear's coming from all the way down inside of this woman <coughs> Betty G. looked up at me and she said, Cricket, darling, <coughs> you know I love you. For the very first time, I looked in my sponsor's face and I said, Betty G., I love you too. And I left in a hurry. And I went down and I called Bingo. And I went home and my daughter was there and she said, I called Granny. See, the people at Harbor are the only family. The only family. 
that my daughter and I have had. And I said, what Granny have to say? She said, oh, Mama, Granny told me she loved me. I said, what'd you tell her? And she said, Mama, I told her I love her too. My daughter went to her first AA meeting when she was three days old. She knows a whole lot about life because of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the most frightening things that happened to her was when she was about five. And that's when this thing about God boxes came out. My sponsor gave me one. She and her friends were playing and one of them opened the lid and my daughter got scared. She says, oh my God, you let God out. I mean, these kids are out in the front yard searching for God to put him back in my box. Because she just knew when I came home I was going to open it up and say, hi boy, and shut it. And she and I laugh about that today. My daughter went into puberty. And I thought, wait a minute. You know, something's going on here that I don't understand. Of course I don't understand it. I was on the streets drunk. I was in a reform school and I was in a state insane asylum. How could I understand normal? How could I understand normal? Had no conception. So I made a deal with her. You go through puberty and I'll leave you alone. And when you're all through, let me know. And she said, okay. And I said, you know why? Because when you're all through, I'm going to go into menopause. (laughs) She's finished and I'm in menopause. Menopause is actually adult woman payback. And it's wonderful. My daughter went through high school and graduated. She went all the way through. And that's my child. She chooses not to drink alcohol or take any mood-altering chemical, and that's my daughter. She's engaged to be married to a young man that I like a whole lot. I like him a whole lot. My daughter does not hit people. My daughter does not steal. She's working to pay her way through college. There came the day when I was able to tell my daughter that I loved her. And that day was the day that she'd called her Granny Betty. And we went over to Betty's house the next morning to see her granny. And I opened the door with her Betty's key, because I had a key. Every morning when I opened her door, I'd say, Betty, I'm here. You know what she'd say? I'm in here, darling. And I'd go in. This morning when I said, Betty, I'm here, there was no answer. And I went upstairs, my friends, and I found my sponsor in her bathroom dead in her lavender nightgown. If your sponsor has ever done anything for you, to heal your soul, to heal your sick mind that the disease of alcoholism has caused, if they've ever helped heal your family, if they've ever touched your hand, if they've ever cried for you or laughed with you or knelt in prayer because of you, tell them thank you today. Tell them thank you today. When I found her, I knelt down beside her and I said, Oh, Betty, I couldn't imagine a world without Betty G. And I know they tell you that nobody is indispensable, and that may be true. But my friends, Betty G is irreplaceable. I do have another sponsor that cares about me. But Betty loved me. Betty loved me. Betty loved what I used to be. She didn't look, she'd never been what I was. But she never looked down her nose on what I used to be. She loved what I had became at the time of her death. 
she would love what I am today. I live in a little yellow house on the south side of Fort Worth, Texas, right smack dab in the middle of Mexican gang town. <laughs> and they leave me alone. <laughs> then young teenage boys, I tell them what a straight edge can be used for. <laughs> and see, I'm still not fully recovered because I mean it when I'm telling them that. My house is the only one without graffiti. And it better stay that way because I'll go calling on them. And I just, you know, that house has got 17 windows. That house has cleanliness. That house has goodness. That house is family. That house has God. My daughter tells me every day, I love you. My daughter has called me three times this weekend. I love you, Mama. My daughter carries a brown paper sack lunch to college, and she holds her head with dignity and thanks God that there's something to put in, inside that brown paper sack. And you know what? Today I could tell my daughter, and I have been able to for a while, I love you too, Kyrie. I sponsor some of the best people in the United States of America. I've got some friends. I've got a little friend named Cindy who's also my sponsoree, who would just do anything to make my life better. But you know, when you got it all, it can't be made better. I've got the best house. cost $20,000. I drive a little 85 Honda. The perfect car for me. Her name's Hannah. <laughs> and I introduce people to her, you know? <laughs> That's what AA does. AA takes a 78-pound woman with no education, no, nothing to work with, absolutely void of all feeling. And AA brings her and brings her and brings her by tolerating her until the teacher can come in and the teacher clothes her. The teacher has to start sometimes clothing her on the outside before she can clothe her on the inside. I'm not what I used to be, but that's still my best friend. Because, see, that, that cricket's right here. And she's ready to up-jump at any given moment. And I have to take responsibility for that cricket. I don't want to hurt anybody here. I don't want to hurt anybody anywhere. I don't want to take from your life. I want to do what you have done for me this weekend. I want to add to your life just for a minute like you've added to mine. If you want to see the most magnificent picture in the whole wide world. Sean was talking earlier about a painting in a museum in Fort Worth, Texas, a Rembrandt. Well, you know, my God's an artist that outdid Rembrandt. Because my God uses all of his capabilities and his love. And he started at that side of the room and he went to that side of the room and he went this way and he painted a picture and if you just look at one another just look at one another is there a more awesome picture every color that you can imagine is right here right now the ages are right here right now the sexes are right here right now God made us whole I am so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous I am so grateful to Betty G. I am grateful to my sponsorees. I am grateful to my daughter. I am grateful to each and every one of you. 
And above and beyond that, I am grateful to my God for taking out of me a heart of stone and putting in me a heart of flesh. Because you were, I am. Thank you very, very much.